Welcome to Ordinary People Doing Extraordinary Things. I'm your host, Carrie Roberts, and I'll be showing you how average, everyday people have chosen to make positive changes in their life to accomplish what makes them happy. I hope this podcast will allow you to feel a connection with people who have something in common with you and make you realize you can have the life you want. Hello, podcast listeners. We are back with positive psychologist Lisa Avery talking about happiness and the emotional roller coaster of life. So, Lisa, last we spoke, we talked about the benefits of being happy, but let's dive right in. Is it realistic and desirable to be happy all the time? Hi, Carrie. Well, I don't think it is realistic or desirable because, you know, in life, bad things happen. You know, sad things happen. People get divorced. People die. We lose jobs. It's not realistic and it wouldn't be a normal reaction to respond to those situations with positive emotions. So I think what we really need to do is to embrace all emotions, the full range of human emotions. And so does that mean when we're embracing it, what, how would you describe that? You mean feeling it fully or expressing it fully? And if so, how do we do that? Absolutely. So what we have to think is that when we're experiencing an emotion, the worst thing we can do is repress it. You know, we a lot of this positive psychology talk really had people believing that it was positive thinking, that we had to be happy all the time. And that's a real misconception because positive psychology openly accepts that we, we need to embrace the full range of human emotions, including the negative ones. So what happens is when we perceive an emotion, and let's just make this clear, an emotion is nothing more than information coming at us about our reaction to our environment at any given moment. So that could be fear, that could be anger, that could be any kind of reaction to our environment environment that is simply telling us something about how we're thinking and feeling at that given time. So the secret is definitely not to repress it, if not to express it. And to express that emotion means to label it. First of all, to recognize the emotion and then to put a label to it. Because by labeling the emotion, we're doing something to calm that down physiologically in our body. So can you give an example of how that would work? Because I, I know a lot of people I've talked to, one of the things they struggle with is they repress the emotion because they don't know how to label it. They don't feel like sure. it falls into quote unquote sadness or fear or something very specific. They, they don't even know how to describe that. So how would somebody do that? And kind of, can you go through kind of the steps of recognizing and labeling it and expressing it? Absolutely. I mean, there was this wonderful experiment with a spider. So for people who suffer from arachnophobia, this is a great example. And what happened was participants were recruited and they had to gradually get closer and closer to the spider. And the participants who actually taught themselves through the process and describing exactly how they felt. Now, what we've begun to understand is that usually people don't just experience one emotion at any given time. There's often, you know, a full range of emotions in there, perhaps a mixture of emotions. So perhaps a person, as they approach the spider, was saying, oh, now I'm feeling a little bit anxious. Now, oh, now it's, I'm feeling frightened. Now I'm feeling really afraid and I'm getting really nervous the closer I get. So perhaps, you know, 
as as you experience any given emotion you don't have to think you don't have to try to put it in a box it might not just be fear it might not just be sadness or anger it, it might be a little bit of nostalgia or it might be rage you know there are there, there are degrees to each and every emotion and i think the more accurately that you can label that the more power you you have over that emotion because until you can label that emotion you can't take any control over it so the first thing it's to recognize what it is and we're not very good at that i have to say we're not very good at distinguishing the subtle nuances of our emotional state and that is something we have to practice hmm i've never heard that said before and i think that that's really important to note that we experience a mix of emotions and maybe that that mix or that ambiguity is the reason people have trouble labeling it yes. because they feel like it has to be one thing, which actually even reminds me of, you know, when people think of what they want to do for a living, they're like, well, I want to yeah. do all these things. So <laughs> that's really interesting uh, to talk about it in more than one emotion. Absolutely. Absolutely. And like I say, Carrie, that comes with practice. And I think something we're going to get on speaking about in a second, it's about, you know, keeping a diary. And that is a brilliant way to become more mindful of, of what we're experiencing. Because most of the time, you know, Carrie, we live in a fairly mindless state. We're very much on autopilot. So actually be, becoming very mindful of that which we're thinking and feeling at any given time, I, I think it's hugely powerful. You know, because we have this real, we circle between our thoughts, our emotions, and our behavior. So, you know, at any given time, something that we're thinking, it's going to make us feel in a certain way. So we're going to have an emotional reaction to that. And that emotional reaction will likely determine our behavior. And then that, that spiral, that circle goes on and on. So the behavior then will lead to the next thought, which will lead to the next emotion. So I think being able to interrupt that cycle at any given time, it's very powerful because then, you know, we're able to intervene and take control of our thoughts and our feelings and then ultimately our behavior, which I guess is where sometimes people struggle. Mm. Mm, I am super excited. This is really interesting. <laughs> Actually, I think articulating a lot of what people are thinking and feeling and putting it into words. So yes. just going back a little bit to kind of that, uh, you know, the fear of spiders. So if yes. somebody starts to kind of in that experiment, they're, they're recognizing and labeling various emotions being around yes. the spider. Mm -hmm. How then is their ability to express that? Is expressing just verbalizing it? Because I know even for myself, like I am sometimes angry or I'm excited. Those are both really intense emotions for me. Sure. And I need sure. to let it out in multiple ways. And sometimes that's exercise. Can that be also a way of expressing it or it has to be verbalized? Sure. I, I think, first of all, I think the thing about verbalizing, it's, put, it's putting some language until you put a word to something, it doesn't really exist, you know. So one thing is sort of like this mix, this, this feeling that you're having, that you're experiencing physiologically, you know, in your body. But until your mind actually articulates that word, it doesn't really exist, you know. So I think there's a real power in emotional articulation for that very reason. As you say later, you know, what you do with that emotion, you know, what, what behavior that emotion leads to, I guess it's, it's a very individual response for every person. Um, and you know, there usually is some kind of physiological reaction to any emotion that we're experiencing. 
you know, so with, with anger or fear, then you've got the increased heart rate, you know, your, your body's pumping blood around your body, the adrenaline, it's the fight or flight response. So I guess that there always is a physiological response to an emotion too. But I think the real power comes in recognizing that because sometimes if we just experience the physiological response without really knowing why, I think that can be more confusing and that can sort of, you know, lead that things can go downhill very quickly if we're not aware of exactly why we're feeling like we're feeling. Hmm. So with so many people, I think, uh, struggling with this ability, I mean, how do people kind of learn to do this? I mean, obviously it's always better to, to do it in childhood, but is it something where, you know, somebody else needs to constantly ask different questions? Are you feeling this? How are you thinking about this? Or how does somebody kind of pull that out? And does that go into kind of the journaling? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think, as you mentioned, you know, teaching children from a very young age to articulate what they're feeling, that in itself is very powerful because, you know, young children, they often get very agitated and they don't really know why and they don't have the vocabulary to express why. So obviously the younger we can get into this habit, the better. But for adults, I think journaling is a fabulous way of really becoming mindful of that which we're thinking and feeling. And I mean, journaling has so many benefits. You know, it's been shown that obviously we become more mindful of what's going on. We can boost our creativity. Uh, We increase our self-awareness. And also we create a very good habit of discipline, you know, by actively writing on a daily or weekly basis. So I I mean, there, there are great studies too supporting this. And we don't have to write necessarily about good things. We can also write about bad things. I don't know whether you'd like me to share with the listeners uh, something about the benefits of writing about trauma caring. Would this be of a good Of course, thing? definitely. Sure. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so what happens is many people experience very difficult situations that they wouldn't necessarily label as trauma, yet they probably do have some some kind of symptoms. Um, so, so anything particularly negative that you've experienced in life that you might not necessarily have articulated. And I know from my own personal experience, Carrie, that when my mom's husband, so my stepfather, was very ill and was dying of a brain tumor, at that time, which was nearly 10 years ago now, I didn't understand that it was okay to express negative emotion. You know, I'm English and there was that very stiff upper lip kind of thing. You know, we're not going to talk about this. We're not going to say how awful this experience is. We're going to stay strong and positive for each other. And I know for that very reason, it took me so much longer to come through that experience, you know. Whereas had had I known about journaling, this, this kind of experience, I think it would have been so much easier for me. Um, so, so let me tell you briefly then, Kerry. So, uh, a well-known psychologist called James Penny Baker, he found that people, if they were to take four days and each of those days they were to write for 20 minutes about the worst thing or one of very bad thing that had happened to them, not taking any care of what they were writing, not thinking about the grammar, not thinking about the spelling, just literally letting your stream of consciousness just flow onto the page or onto the screen for 20 minutes, only 20 minutes each day for four days. At the end of those four days, gradually they'd start to see a marked improvement in their psychological, emotional, and sometimes even physical health. Mm. 
You know, I, uh, it's interesting you say that because uh, in college, I minored in creative writing. And one of the things that they had us do was stream of conscious writing, that we were supposed mm. to just write down whatever was in our head. And yes. I use that a lot in college. You know, in college, you're kind of, you're figuring out a lot of stuff. And what's fascinating is you kind of write till you can't anymore. And then we yes. would go back and you would look at like what's standing out or you hand it to somebody else and they can tell you what's standing out. Yeah. You know, it could be like, wow, it looks like you have no time. I remember that was one that was coming up like, hmm, I'm stressed because of my schedule or you know, I'm confused yeah. about this. And it's, it's very telling. Absolutely. Absolutely, Kerry. I think the clarity that can really sort of jump out from the page, it, it's astounding, you know, and, and just reading that back. Wow, there are so many realizations, as you say. And I mean, you know, the very having having to put pen to paper or having to type onto a screen, you know, we have to organize our thoughts, which is something we don't necessarily do in, in our normal everyday thinking process. You know, we have a lot of sort of chaotic thoughts whizzing through our minds. So actually sitting down, and having to find the time and find the way to express yourself, I think it's immensely powerful and obviously spills into other aspects of life. You know, I think it gives you real clarity around a lot of different things going on in life. And I mean, you don't have to write about negative things necessarily. You know, there have been a lot of studies reporting the benefits of writing about the positive things, which I think we're going to get on speaking about in a while, keeping a gratitude diary. Um, but, but the other thing is, you know, writing about goals too, writing about life goals. There's been a, there's a very nice activity called My Best Possible Self by Laura King, a psychologist, and she found that getting people to write, I think it was for four days too, um, just for, you know, 20, 30 minutes per day for four days, getting to envision their best possible future self in, in all detail possible. So really, you know, speaking like it was the present. So this is my life. I'm doing this. These are my circumstances. I'm living here. You know, it, it can really get people very clear and also very motivated, excited about the future. So, you know, there are different kinds of writing activities for different purposes. But I think whether it's thinking about the past or else thinking about the future there are ways in which this can really boost our emotional well-being mm, I completely agree I actually do this a lot and it's funny because as we're talking about this uh, a couple days ago uh, as you were saying you know we get chaotic thoughts I had that in my head and I felt like I was like I need to get this out <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of things going on and I'm not yeah. feeling clear and I find that when I can find clarity I find truth and reality and able to take yeah. the next step and yeah. I went, you know, to Starbucks and it was funny. I read uh, for two hours and then I wrote for an hour. Wow. And the process afterwards, it's a little emotional. Like I had yes. to be like, okay, I, it's not okay to cry in the Starbucks. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, as you kind of, whatever you're going through or things that you come to realizations, like those kind of aha moments of good or bad. Sure. Um, sure. But it's really, really cleansing and freeing, yes. I think. Um, what is the difference between somebody writing it down pen to paper versus somebody typing it versus somebody talking about it? I, I mean, do you find that there's different, uh, a different process or one's better than the other? Well, it's a brilliant question. I don't know if there's any research showing the difference between typing and writing. I'd, I'd be fascinated to see that. I'll definitely look into that because I'm not sure. In terms of speaking, 
Um, I guess when you're speaking, there's always going to be another person involved. So what I would say is that perhaps, not always, but perhaps you might hold back slightly more when you know that someone's going to be listening and reacting to what you're saying. I think there's real liberty, real freedom to be found in writing or, or typing for the fact that, you know, no one else is necessarily going to have to read what you're writing. So I, I think, you know, people are likely to be more open and honest with themselves in, in that situation. Of course, you know, the therapeutic benefits of, of, of speaking with a friend of psychotherapy, wow, I mean, they're very very well documented obviously I, I think it really depends on the person and whatever they feel most comfortable with you know if if by any chance I, I think many people aren't necessarily very comfortable about with talking about their emotions and in that case I would suggest starting with a diary if you do feel comfortable to speak to a friend then perfect and I think the more you do that the easier it becomes once again it's simply acquiring that initial kind of vocabulary around speaking about your emotions you know and I know that especially for men this can be quite difficult so I, I, I guess diary is a great way especially for men but but also for women who don't necessarily feel like they have those kind of friendships when they can, where they can speak about emotions in that way. Yeah. And this kind of brings me to then a question that I've been thinking about because uh, I think a lot of people, you know, especially those that have, you know, mental health issues or have had trauma or whatever, they go to therapists mm. and some will say it's helpful and some are like, it's not helpful or they haven't found the right therapist. I mean, and obviously, you know, there's studies that show that does help, but in your personal opinion, or even just in the uh, positive psychology world, I mean, is it better for people to be doing this alone and writing it down? Or, you know, if you're saying that they're going to get more benefits out of it, I'm just wondering, would they get better results doing the writing yeah. versus the speaking or even doing the writing first before the speaking? So I, I think it, it really, there are so many factors to take into consideration here. I mean, the how effective psychotherapy is, it really depends on the relationship between the therapist and the patient, you know, the same in coaching, it's, it's the coach and it's the client, like a massive, massive part of any success within that is going to be the relationship, like there are many studies which support that, it's so so not about the methodology used, you know, if not the relationship. So, so I think, you know, if you're able to find a coach or a therapist and, and whether you choose the coach or the therapist, it's really going to depend on your circumstances and where you are in your life. But I think if you're going to go to a therapist or a coach, you really need to find somebody with whom you can have a very, very open and honest and comfortable relationship. You, you know, you just need to feel that rapport. You need to click with that person because that's going to determine the success of, of everything that ensues. So I, I think as well, it really depends on what level of trauma you're dealing with. Obviously, if something really, really awful has happened and you have never really expressed this to anybody, it might be time to seek some some professional help, you know, if you feel it's having some kind of impact on a daily basis. And I mean, often I guess people aren't necessarily aware that it is, which is why keeping a diary is, is a great place to start because I think you can, as you say yourself, you can start to notice patterns arising, you know. If you keep a diary for a few weeks, for a month, for a few months, you'll start to see recurrent themes. And if you start to see those recurrent themes, maybe it's a sign that you might want to look for a little bit of support. Mm, 
Yeah, no, I, I agree with that analysis. Uh, no, I think writing's so important. Why do you think, uh, I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I was always into creative writing. It was something I always did as a kid naturally. And then of course took creative writing classes in high school and sure. college because I wanted to, but I don't know if schools are doing that now. Uh, but is that something that you've seen schools doing or even work or places that are encouraging this more? And if not, how do we get them to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I, I just don't think creativity is really sort of, I don't think there's enough emphasis around that generally. And, you know, in the future, I hope to see so much more of that in schools, you know, free thinking, because more and more as the education system is changing, you know, we're preparing kids for a future that is so uncertain, you know. Most children now that have been in the current education system well, we, they're being prepared for a future that is just, we just don't know what that is. You know, most of the jobs they'll be doing are not yet creative. So perhaps the kind of skills that we should be teaching, are, you know, critical thinking skills, creativity, teamwork, entrepreneurship. So I absolutely agree with you. So creative writing and sort of self-expression, I think, is a vital component of that. Um, how to go about that I think is a great question you know I don't know about you Carrie but at school I kind of felt like we were being spoon-fed so as just to to go through this system where really it was just to focus on exams and passing exams and doing very well and I can actually remember asking a teacher a question and being told oh well that's not on the syllabus you don't need to know that so curiosity you know curiosity needs to be developed because curiosity leads to well-being in so many Many ways so cultivating curiosity in children and adults alike I think is vital absolutely vital would you yeah. do, do, do you see that Carrie in the people oh, that you work with? definitely I mean I, I can you know speaking for myself I mean I've always been a learner I'm, I'm constantly curious but I I do remember that in school uh, you think about how much you had to memorize and I yeah. don't remember anything no. um, for how many years, you know, in the U S you know, we learn about the civil war and the revolutionary war yeah. and little that I remember because it was so much yeah. about facts. Absolutely. It's ridiculous. And um, I remember going to college and I went out of state, which meant it was more money. And I remember yeah. taking a class that I had to, because it was part of, you know, your general education and walking yeah. in and the instructor saying, you know, hey, I don't want to be here. You don't want to be here. Let's just get <laughs> class. And I was like, first of all, I'm wow. for this. And yeah. second of all, what is the point of even doing this class? And so again, yeah. it became take notes. Here's the facts. I'm going to tell you what's on the test so you can pass and yeah. you can move on, which is insane. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, Carrie. And, and I think you touched on something really interesting there in the fact that by just learning facts, we don't really retain that information because there's no emotion involved. You know, there have been studies which show that what stays in the memory is usually something that's emotionally quite salient. So I think, you know, what we really need to do for with young people and for adults too, it's to tap not only into the minds, but into the hearts and the minds, you know, because usually facts that are infused with emotion these are the things that we remember so i think you know we really need to access that curiosity and and those and that level of emotion in young people as we're teaching them you know yeah i agree i mean i um you know i have a dance company and when i'm teaching my students uh i mean i do this with the adults too i do a lot yeah. of activities where i do like kind of almost like a brief mini 10 minute lecture followed sure. by uh them doing some sort of critical thinking or activity together. 
And it's really interesting to watch how they learn and grow. And one of the big things is I'll have them where I'll teach them something very small and I don't let them ask me questions. They have to figure it out for themselves and with a buddy. Mm. And the excitement they feel and their ability to remember it more is so much higher from them doing that versus them just listening to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they feel that competence then. Absolutely. You know, people need to feel competent. They need to feel autonomous in that and they need to feel connected to others, you know. So I think that is a brilliant exercise that really brings the the three things together. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I think, you know, Carrie, as we're saying, if we can cultivate this sense of curiosity in young people and adults alike, that that is a massively positive thing. Because curiosity it's associated with a vast array of positive emotions and well-being and I think we, we might get on to speaking about the importance of those positive emotions perhaps in a few minutes but I just wanted to say you know the, the brain has evolved to paying far more attention to negative emotions because we've been primed for survival not for happiness you know so we have we must recognize at all times that we do have a negative bias in our brain and I think that's a really important thing to mention. So if, if you know, if you receive five compliments, but one insult, you're going to hone in on the insult. And I think that's something we don't really give, we don't pay attention to and we should, because sometimes the negative can take over, you know, the positive. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, that's definitely true. So then let's go into the positive emotion. So let's talk about the importance of that. Uh, and how do we, you know, based on what you just said, you know, focus on the five great things versus the one negative thing when our brain scientifically and genetically is primed to do that. Absolutely. So I think there's quite a lot we can do to cultivate positive emotions and gratitude. We, we have to talk about gratitude because that is essential. So learning to, to look for things to feel grateful for on a daily basis, I think that is essential. You know, it's impossible to feel grateful and to feel angry or sad at the same time, you know, gratitude is a, an immensely positive emotion. And that in turn leads to other positive emotions because there's a psychologist called Barbara Fredrickson. And I think your listeners should check her out because she's amazing. She, she does a lot of great talks on YouTube and TED. And she speaks about the broaden and build theory of positive emotions. Have you ever heard of that, Kerry? Broaden no, and I build? have not. I'll have to check it out. Sure. Sure, absolutely. So, so basically, it means that for, for every positive emotion you experience, it goes on to open us up, to open our minds, and even to open our peripheral vision to more positive emotions and more positive experiences. Funnily enough, there have been experiments in which people were, were given a positive, for example, um, people were given, were shown a funny movie, a funny film, and later they had to look at a picture. And having seen the comedy, the funny moment, they actually focused on more of a picture than the people who'd seen something negative beforehand. So literally, positive emotions actually broaden our peripheral vision, which I think is incredible. And so the power of positive emotions is that they literally open us up to more and more experiences. Negative emotions, you know, they make us very close to other people, to other experiences, because we go into this kind of self-protection mode. Whereas positive emotions open us up, they make us want to connect with other people, which in turn, you know, brings more opportunities our way. And gratitude is one of those emotions 
emotions that we can start with, you know. By feeling grateful, it's likely that we attract and we experience further positive emotions. So gratitude would definitely be a great place to start, as is mindfulness, Kerry, you know, because by becoming very aware of what's going on in our present, I don't know whether you've heard, Carrie, but, you know, in the present, it's unlikely that we ever really experience any negative emotion, any anxiety, any fear. A lot of fear and a lot of anxiety, it's, it's either projection into the future or it's looking back, you know, feeling depressed and sad about things that happen. But actually, in the present moment itself, it's usually one without too much negative emotion. So becoming very mindful to, to what's going on in the present, I think, is, is a great place to start, too. Mm, that's huge. So yeah. fear and anxiety are stemming from future and past, not Egg. the present. Exactly. Sorry. So fear and anxiety really stemming from the future and, and sadness and, and depression, usually things coming from the past. But actually, when we're in the very present moment, it's unlikely that if we really are in the present moment, we're experiencing anything too negative. Um, so gratitude and mindfulness would be good emotions to cultivate would be good states to cultivate which then lead to positive emotions curiosity as we say is is a brilliant one you know because no matter what you're experiencing you can always feel curious as to that even when it's a negative emotion you know you can ask yourself some questions around that and once you start to ask questions around what you're feeling and why you're feeling again we're putting words, we're putting labels to these emotions. And the moment we label these emotions, they lose power over us. So I think curiosity, even when we're in a negative state, it's a great one to cultivate, you know? Mm, yes, yes. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm very excited as I'm learning all of this and, and you know, in more detail. So I have a couple of questions in response to what you just said. Sure. I have had people say to me when I've talked about gratitude um, that... When someone asks them, when they're in, not in a great mental state, and someone asks them to think about what they're grateful for, uh, or to think about, you know, oh, the situation's not as bad, like it could be worse, or, you know, kind of creating awareness. I've had people say that that makes them feel like their problem is not important. What do you kind of say to that? And how do you yeah. get out of that? Yeah, I, well, I know what you mean. And you know, I've been guilty of this myself in the past. I can remember having a conversation with a friend who was feeling very depressed. And for every positive thing I had to say, she'd come back with something negative. And I actually got very frustrated. And, and a few years later, I thought about this and I felt really bad because I realized that at that moment, she didn't want me to come up with solutions, you know, to her situation or to come up with possible you know, positive outcomes. All she needed to do was articulate just how bad she was feeling and to feel understood, you know. And I think that is essential. Just sometimes we just need to say how bad we're feeling in order to feel understood, in order to label that, in order to express that so as to be able to move on from that. So whilst I, I too am guilty of trying to make people see the positive in some situation, I think there's a time and place for everything. And sometimes we really just do need to express how bad we're feeling in order to move on from that. Whether that's in a diary, whether that's in a conversation with a friend with a glass of wine, or whether that's with a therapist, sometimes we just need to get it out. Yet, 
on the other hand, cultivating gratitude, which we can do with our looking for three good things on a daily basis in a gratitude journal, I think is a brilliant way to prime ourselves because, you know, that way, if, if you're looking for just three good things that happen to you every single day, no matter how small, you know, whether it's for the coffee you have in the morning, whether it's for a smile exchanged with just a stranger, it doesn't matter what it is, but just three simple but positive things on a daily basis we begin to look for things, to notice things, to become more mindful of these things, you know. It's a habit. It's kind of like going to the gym and developing a muscle. And I think the more we do it, the easier it becomes. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I want to talk about also mindfulness. You know, it's something meditation and mindfulness has been around for a long time. And I feel like it's definitely becoming more mainstream uh, as people realize that they need to be more in the present. Can you talk about sure. how meditation kind of helps bring us more mindful and helps with this whole concept of positive emotions? Sure. I, I mean, mindfulness really, a very simple definition would just be being very aware of the present moment in a non-judgmental non sense. And, and once again, really honing your attention to the present moment, which is really devoid of any emotion. You're just simply there sitting in serenity in the present moment it's massively massively powerful and i think over time you know there are studies which actually show you can change your brain physiologically by becoming more mindful there's a vast vast array of benefits you know but literally it is just a case of bringing yourself calming yourself and becoming very very aware of the present moment which most of the time we're not you know we're mindless most of the time we live in an autopilot mindless state so so by becoming aware of ourselves and, and, and our present moment, that, that just leads to positive emotions in the sense that we're, we're not feeling negative emotions, you know, we're not worrying, we're not projecting into the future, which is a place where most of us live most of the time, as I think we, we were mentioning last week, you know, at one time psychologists used to think that what held people back was thinking about the past, but actually, you know, people are finding that actually it's anxiety about the future, we're very future-oriented beings, so actually coming back and sitting in the present, which I guess at the end of the day is all we ever really have that is immensely powerful and uplifting for a person yeah and with you know so many people dealing with anxiety and depression uh in various forms how does somebody so we're journaling we're, we're being more grateful how does somebody kind of continue to battle those feelings of let's you know speak more to the future of the anxiety of the future especially now with social media, you know, you think, okay, I have this idea in my head of what I want to do, but then you're seeing everybody else. And then you start to have this kind of competitive mindset of like, wait, maybe I'm not doing the right thing. So how do we kind of battle some of that anxiety with the journaling or the positive emotions? Sure. I, I think, you know, taking a very self-compassionate stance is very helpful. I think, you know, people are very hard on themselves. As we were mentioning before, we have this ongoing chatter in our minds. And most of the time, we're not really aware of that chatter. 
And so for every thought we have, we tend to think it's true. And I think mindfulness is brilliant because by intervening, by really stopping and bringing ourselves back to the present moment, we can somehow escape that, you know, downward spiral of, of, of thinking. Sometimes we lose ourselves, you know, in this negative spiral of emotion. And by becoming very mindful, very hooked in the present moment, we can just intervene and we can stop and we can think about the kind of thoughts and words we're using, you know, about ourselves, to ourselves, and we can try to cultivate a little bit of self-compassion. So, you know, you have to be very, very careful with the things you say to yourself repeatedly, because many, many times, you know, these are habits of, that happen on a daily basis. So I think by taking some kind of mindfulness or meditation practice, even if it's for five or 10 minutes per day, that can have a really profound effect on, on our thought process, you know, which is very calming too also. So that could be good for the anxiety. But once again, I guess it really depends on the level of anxiety and stress. And, and obviously someone with chronic anxiety would perhaps need a little bit of help to control that. I'm just talking about an average person who perhaps experiences some anxiety, but it's not debilitating. I guess if it really is at the point of being debilitating, then I guess you really do need some help. Yeah. And I think I'm curious what you think about this because I did this the other day as I was, I'm very future oriented and always sure. thinking about, you know, where I want to be and what I need to do in the present to get there. Sure. And as I was thinking of different changes that I'd like to make in my life, I, I started writing down any of the fears that I had about those changes. Yes. And then afterwards I wrote down next to it, well, what's the worst that could happen? And Absolutely. how can I battle that. And actually I felt much better because it made it be like, actually like the worst that could happen is you just are back where you started, which is really exactly. not that big of a deal. What, how does that help? Or, or do you have any other thoughts on, on how people could utilize something like that? If that's helpful. Yeah, absolutely, Kerry. I think that's brilliant. And there is some research supporting this kind of this kind of activity too. It's kind of projecting into the future of what could be. And in the worst case scenario, it's like you're make, making mental preparations for how you could solve that. And I think that's great. That gets, you know, the creative thinking going, thinking about the possible solutions to it's all very hypothetical, you know, but the mind works in that way. And we do, as we were saying, you know, our brain has that negative bias and we do tend to think of like the worst possible outcomes, you know, when, when we're experiencing a moment of fear or of uncertainty. I guess the thing is, you know, often human beings don't really like change and uncertainty very much. And I guess that's why people stay in the dreaded comfort zone for so long. And sometimes you need something to happen to shake you out of that. So I guess, you know, Carrie, by thinking about these things and projecting into the future a little and, and making some kind of plan, I guess little by little you're kind of generating the courage to take a step forward and I think what we have to remember at all times is that you know moving ahead going ahead with life we only have to take tiny little steps you know but we have to create this curiosity around what could be a little bit of self-compassion as we start to experiment because there are going to be pitfalls you know we are going to make mistakes along the way but it's it's to cultivate this you know continual desire for self-growth in every aspect of life you know and, and that takes courage but also that really needs some self-compassion and it needs support you know and and, and 
in the same way, we need to be able to articulate this as we move forward, how, what we're thinking, how we're feeling, because otherwise life can be quite lonely and alienating. So I think it's great to be able to start to talk about all of this, whether it's with your diary, whether it's with a friend or whoever it's with. Yeah. Um, so let's go back, you know, uh, with everything we've talked about and kind of just create kind of a action plan checklist that people can do, uh, whether that's any sure. surveys they need to take or the journaling, like kind of a step-by-step approach that people kind of can take away with them. Absolutely. Absolutely, Carrie. So there, there are three things that I would definitely highlight from what we've been talking about. And the first one would be the diary habit. Again, because that's something which will boost your creativity. It'll be good for mindfulness. It will increase your self-awareness, you know, so what you're thinking, what you're feeling, you, you become aware of new things. And also it will create some kind of disciplined habit in your life. And one disciplined habit, you know, could lead to another disciplined habit. So I think that's a great thing. So the diary habit would definitely be the first thing, you know. It needn't be on a daily basis, but I think, you know, it's something that you should do regularly to really reap the benefit. So something which is very similar to the diary habit would be the three good things per day. So the gratitude journal. So just very simply listing three good things that happen to you on a daily basis, perhaps for, you know, a fortnight, for two weeks. Because if you remember from last week, we were talking about hedonic adaptation, which simply means that very quickly we get used to things in life. So then things start to lose their effect. So if we do this all the time, I I think it could lose effect. But for example, for two or three weeks, I think this could be a really great way to start to train the mind to look for good things that are happening in our lives. Because no matter what our circumstances are, I'm pretty sure that most people can pull out three simple but positive things from their day. So there would be the diary habit, there would be the gratitude journal. And then finally, and I think this is something we touched on last week, would be to take the VIA survey, you know, the values in actions survey at the University of Pennsylvania and this is great because once we get to learn our strengths we get to find new ways to use our strengths which could lead to further positive emotions and as we were saying you know by cultivating gratitude kindness mindfulness it's likely that we, we, the broaden and build theory will come into play and they will open us up to more and more positive emotions. And just as I'm speaking about that, I didn't really mention earlier, which I think I should, the kindness habit. So there's something called random acts of kindness. Have you heard about this, Carrie? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, just by, by doing something, however simple, however small, by doing something kind for another human being, we get a huge physiological reaction. It's, it's so good for us and we feel great, you know, and so does the recipient. So just by being a little kinder, by being a little bit more grateful, by being a little bit more mindful, these are all things that will lead to further positive emotions. Now to know what will really do it for you, I think taking the strength survey is a great way to find out because usually our strengths also reflect our values, you know, so what we think is the most important thing in life. So I would say that, Kerry, I would say by following the diary habit, doing the three good things a day, but in the gratitude journal. And once again, I'd urge your listeners, if they haven't already done this, to take the Via Strengths survey, to tap into their strengths and to look for novel ways to use them in order to cultivate a vast array of positive emotions. I think that's a great start. And I think this was a wonderfully informative um, and clear, 
you know, talk about emotions and how to express them. So I thank you again, Lisa, for this. And uh, I look forward to sharing and learning more about part three next time. Thank you so much, Kerry. It's been an absolute pleasure. I just love talking about this subject. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to do so. And I hope it's been useful. Hi, podcast listeners. Have a question about what we discussed today or have a topic you'd like us to cover on Wednesdays? Send me an email over at Kerry, K-E-R-I dot N dot Roberts, R-O-B-E-R-T-S at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and provide as much value as possible to your personal growth journey. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would greatly appreciate a review over on iTunes. And if you'd like to be featured on the podcast, be sure to message me over on Instagram at Kerry, K-E-R-I dot N dot Roberts. Remember that each of us has something that makes us great. So go out there and show the world what makes you extraordinary.